Hi, I'm Dr. Von Duke, and I want to talk to you today about my concept uh, called democratic pedagogy. Now, the term democratic pedagogy isn't unique to me, but it's the most descriptive for what I'm going to talk about. And um, so I'll get into it a little bit about how other people use that concept and how I would like to use that concept here on this podcast. To begin with, I just want to give you an example of a situation where um, I can sort of reveal what this concept is. So in my um, teaching diversity and equity in education at the University of Delaware, for instance, I often do this demonstration where I will have students uh, do a little scenario where I'll have two students pretend that one is at a computer and somebody's sitting next to him and the rest of the classroom is around. And I'll tell the student who's at the pretend computer to bang on the keyboard and swear because he's frustrated that something isn't happening correctly. And then I'll ask the students to please come up and try to talk to the student about what they just did. And it's really interesting because I give them no more direction than that. And they really bring their own experiences to that, which in and of itself is revealing. Um, and, but in this one particular case, I had this one student who was just great. He was just such a rebel and so resistant to everything that was done. He just sort of crumbled everybody's attempt. So, you know, somebody would come up and be very authoritarian. Okay, we just aren't having that in this classroom. You're going down to the principal's office. And he was like, I'm not going and I don't care. And I can swear if I want to, to um, somebody saying, well, I'm going to have to call your parents. I don't care. What are they going to do? Take away something. I'm going to swear anyway, because I want to. And uh, to teachers practically begging, like, that's not how I want my classroom to be. I don't care what you want. So um, after he went through and uh, repelled all of their issue, their uh, approaches um, to managing this problem, I asked them if they wanted me to try, and they were like, sure. So again, without laying out any precursor ideas to the student of what I was doing or why or where these ideas came from, it was interesting to see how he responded because I pulled him aside and I said, you know, privately, but so that the class could hear, do you remember when we had that classroom meeting and we talked about swearing? And he's like, Okay, and I said, remember that some of you boys especially said you really felt like you should be able to swear whenever you want to, and some of the other students said it made them uncomfortable, they didn't swear at home. Some students said we swear at home, what's the big deal? Um, some students said, you know, we don't like it when we can hear it. And do you remember that you all negotiated about what to do about that? Do you remember what you said? And he's like, of course he didn't remember because it's made up. And I said, remember that you said, but this actually happened in the classroom that I was, um, leading in a fourth through sixth grade Montessori classroom in the city. And so um, what the students um, said is that I would like to, um, okay, wait a minute. Let me pause this. All right, so back to the story. So he resisted all their efforts. And then, um, so I told him about this discussion that we had in the classroom and how he agreed that um, he would wear in the schoolyards off in the corner where they would not use those practices in the classroom. And did he remember and voted on that, negotiated that, and agreed on that, and made that promise to his classmates. And he looked at me a little bit sheepishly, and he said, yeah, I forgot. OK, I'm sorry. I'll stop swearing. <laughs> and it was so powerful. Um, 
And you might not have that issue in your classroom or with your own children, but you probably have some vaccine problem, classroom management issue that just keeps emerging and you're, you're torn about what to do with it. So let me provide this as a possible approach to use or trial and see, please respond, please uh, send me comments, send an email, um, and let me know how it works out or what questions you have. So um, the other interesting thing I found about that exercise with my student was just how punitive, manipulative, or beseeching, but largely ineffective the students' approaches were. And by effective, I mean as an educator for the students' learning. So authoritative, authoritarian approaches can be effective, like we can beat kids into submission, right? But there's an ethical problem with it. And then what do they learn? Do we want kids? to not swear because we told them not to, because some higher authority told them to, or because out of respect for the diversity of who was in the classroom and, and how people have different feelings and values around this, we can stop our behavior or negotiate our behavior with others who, by the way, just because somebody is against swearing, is that the ethical higher ground or is that simply a values choice, right? So all those are important discussions to have. and really, really pertain to this group of fourth and fifth and sixth grade students. Um, so it's, you know, it's interesting because what students care about is what's mostly what's happening in their immediate world. So that is the best place to begin um, any kind of a teaching exercise. So the process I just described that actually happened in my classroom began like this. Um, I would observe students' behavior, so collective. Anything between students, um, I would approach through a mediation process and train mediators. And I talk a little bit about that in podcast too. And I can talk about it more down the road. But I'm really talking about the social setting of the classroom. So when you see some issue emerge in the classroom that's happening over and over again, we don't need to point out specific kids as much as note that the context of our classroom is creating this kind of environment. And then with the kids, start discussing what to do about it. So what I would do is I would keep an agenda of these sort of observations. The only person who was allowed to be pointed out on the agenda board was me. The students could call me up. I don't like it when the teacher does, and they put something there. And what I like about the agenda is it makes transparent the things that are problematic, but it gives you time to think about it. We actually did this at home. So I have 12 children. And um, at one point we had some roommates in that we were housing during the pandemic. And the agenda board, and oftentimes something I did was on the agenda board, you know? So one thing I could do is just go take care of it and then take it off the board because I took care of the issue if it was something that could be solved like that, right? Realize that I had been maybe not thoughtful with something I had done. And I don't like being called out like anybody else I get as embarrassed or ashamed or triggered by that sort of thing. So the agenda board is nice that way. It gives people a chance to prepare and think, maybe correct their behaviors ahead of time, talk to them privately. Uh, but then the next step would be a classroom meeting. So I held with this group of kids a daily classroom meeting at lunch where we would bring up issues on just, there was lot so we needed the daily they tune out but they didn't make it optional in um, democratic schools where kids run the school optional and often traditional meeting all the kids don't show up and then what happens is it becomes a representative form of government 
I don't think it then preserves a pedagogical process. If kids can avoid it because it's boring, it's like exciting and boring at the same time, they would tell me, um, then the process of deliberation, listening, respect was kind of lost. I felt like there's a balance there. The other thing I would say to the students is, look, other people are going to make decisions for you that you're going to have to agree to and live with because you chose not to be at the meeting. So rather than risk that at this point, maybe down the road, um, in another year with those students, that might have been a different decision. But for this class, that was the right decision. Uh, we then, uh, what I then do a meeting, I'll say to the students, well, this, this is a very pressing issue for me. Number three, that's something I really want to talk about, but is there something you want to talk about? They might pick out something different, and then we would vote on what to talk about next. Sometimes my topic didn't get talked about um, during that meeting, and sometimes I would pressure my topic. We really have to talk about it, it involves safety or hurt feelings or what have you, so it can't be let go. Um, and so then we would start discussing in the case of swearing we would ask you know who swears and why is it a problem is is it a problem for you is it a problem not for others and students would talk about um you know well my family swears at home what's the big deal like we all swear like if we get upset or aggravated or something swearing keeps us from like hitting somebody and somebody else might say we don't swear my parents get very upset about it they think that it's bad vocabulary you're not showing good class there um, or we have religious reasons against swearing and so all of these things emerge and one of the things that happens with that process is kids who are most kids and i'm going to talk about all the way at least through high school are self-referenced so i'm not saying that they're selfish per se but they're just they're not necessarily aware of how their actions would affect somebody else, especially if somebody else's family culture is very different from their own. It might not cross their minds. It sometimes doesn't cross teachers' minds that that difference exists and that for somebody, swearing is very, very, very much okay, whereas for somebody else, it's just awful. Um, so what this does is it kind of makes out all of our assumptions and puts it on the table and makes our implicit biases transparent. And it can be a surprise to students who do swear to realize, oh, other people have really strong feelings and they feel hurt and offended. Kids who are very much against swearing would be like, oh, for them, it feels freeing and helps them regulate themselves if they can swear. So then comes a negotiated decision. Then we would talk about like where and when is swearing a problem? Where is it most problematic? Where is it least problematic? Do we need to make it all go away? Do, can we allow it in some spaces, but, but not others? For instance, in Japanese, there's a movie called uh, Preschool in Three Cultures. And in that movie, preschool kids are allowed to swear in the private spaces of the playground, but not in the formal public spaces of the classroom. Like, so that's what they call code switching. And the Japanese teachers are very comfortable teaching students how to be respectful in formal settings and how to be informal and relaxed with your friends in your informal settings and that that code switching, even little kids can manage that. Then we talk about, well, how can we have some mechanisms in place to remind each other if somebody swears that that's not okay? How are we gonna do that in a way that's not offensive? We talk about ways that somebody would be willing to hear that um, and then or be reminded of that. So maybe they just want a signal, um, what have you. And then we decide, well, how many times does a person 
forget and not take responsibility to decide that they're actually just and we need to um, have policing action. So what would the, that policing action be? What kind of consequence would be in place? How long would it be in place? What's interesting is both the kids and my undergrads were very often very punitive and very often very punitive the questions or have idea they made assumptions of why kids did what they did. There's your implicit bias. Surprise, people can have different views. And then I was students that we're going to have a follow-up discussion, maybe in three days, maybe in a week, to see how our proposed solution is working. And do we need to make adjustments? Is it working for everybody? Are we harming some people more than others? Are people feeling upset about how this is working? Are they struggling? Um, how can we support them? Do we need to change the parameters of what we're doing? Uh, so all of that seems like um, a lot of work, but I tell you that in the long run, it was very short. And in podcast two, um, I talk about a flower job decision that students made in our Montessori cooperative homeschool at the time. And one of the things that I've noted and other, um, other researchers who've done this have noted that once you have this discussion with kids, they the the problem very often goes away there's like nothing needs to be enacted or a few private reminders are said between the kids but no policing action is taken by the teacher there's no resistance the problem just literally melts away and i think it's because again that awareness piece is uh super important to kids the second thing um I like to say is thing I know that have happened by taking this approach with kids as a teacher is, first of all, I learn what the kids are thinking, why they do what they're doing. The kids learn how their behavior affects others. The students come up with creative solutions, very often solutions that I would not have thought of better than ones that I would have thought of. They decide on the consequences and agree to them. And as a result, they buy into the rules. They feel safer because there's a sense of fairness and control that they feel over their classroom. and also that things are transparent there's no lurking something going on that they're not aware of if they're up you know how you've been in a situation where you know something you're doing is upsetting people but it just feels lurking and you don't know how it's going to erupt or come down on you that social anxiety goes away because we've we've brought those things forward they end up on the agenda and we know that we're going to talk about it and therefore my kids reported to me that they learn with greater ease I think another thing we learn is that solutions, routines, and rules can all be modified to support our classroom, not the other way around. So the classroom isn't dictated to by these things. The classroom is supported by those things. So we're not just blindly obeying authority for the sake of authority. We are creating authority together in the classroom to support us in the classroom. Um, and, and then we um, also are revisiting since we created the rules and since they don't come from the top down, really working as well as we thought they might. And trust me, sometimes as a leader, I've definitely invoked bad decisions when I've taken a more authoritarian approach and then later really regretted it. Had I had some feedback, um, it would have been modified in a way that was more sensible. And then uh, I just also wanna point out that in this approach, it's not like you're being permissive or indulgent or giving up power as a teacher. It's more like you're distributing authority and responsibility across the classroom so it's not just centered in you the teacher 
wherever you are, discipline and authority are happening, but that corner over there where you're not, it's not happening, right? Now, everybody's part of the authority system. Everybody's part of the responsibility system. Everybody has agreed to it or at least been part of the negotiation process. Even if they didn't like it, they at least know that most of their classmates want it. And, um, and therefore, it's actually more effective in the long run than just having that be centered in one person. And also, I should point out that as a teacher, you are mother, counselor, teacher, policeman, social worker, like you wear many hats at different times. You're primarily an educator, but sometimes you have to put up the stop sign. And I not hesitate. I even asked the students, like, do you want me to police this or would you like something? And they're like, no, we want you. Wanted me to be that guy in the classroom to be the backbone to ensure that what they decided would happen would happen and that is not a bad thing it gave them a sense of security i also had no problem saying to them at points this is not a decision i can agree with or negotiate on here's the decision i'm making or here's the decision the school board made or here's the decision the principal made here's the degrees of freedom we have within it where we can make decisions and here's where we cannot you can talk to me about how you like this or don't like this and maybe I can modify it in some way, but like that is not a line that I am either going to let you cross or that the principal will let us cross or what have you. So I really, unlike democratic schooling, which the kids run the school, hire the teachers, make all the decisions, um, I think it's not representative of what we actually have in our society that we fall within spheres of democratic influence and that there's ways to influence the democratic spheres around us or protest them, but um, that we don't just have willy-nilly all of us make any changes we want at any time. Um, that's just not the way it works. So, um, and this idea of this distributed leadership, like how much you extend to the students, it's gonna depend on your comfort as a teacher, the parents, the ages of the students, the curriculum you're trying to teach, parents' purposes. Like I have no ideal of what democratic pedagogy should look like. I think that it has many, many useful implications for students' learning and their agency, and especially for issues of equity. Uh, but, um, the students become engaged in the social systems in terms of um, here's the here's why you should try it, even though it might seem scary. This is this is why this is what I noticed and what kept me going, even though at times I was very. Um, when I saw see themselves as active participants in making um they became interested in ideas of democracy they understood themselves to be active participants and this ultimately is what school is about. i am not one who believes that we should raise kids to be better than us i think we should be better for them um, i think that's childism when we put on kids the pressure of society society in general needs is in flux and needs to change we're moving from representative democracy to having a very strong economic political needs towards deliberative de democracy, which is a conversation out there in, in the realms of the, the politics of democracy. But, but I, the tensions around that are happening everywhere. Our kids will learn better, even if the world they step into does not have deliberative democracy, they will still understand this process and be able to use effective 
effectively when and where they're able to, even if it's for just decisions about their own life, and that has value. Um, whether or not it participates in a change in society, there are Cuban and uh, Cuban and Tayek have talked about why schools don't change society, society creates schools. So that's a different conversation. I would just say there that not only should students be having deliberative democracy in their classrooms through this democratic pedagogy, but it should happen amongst teachers, with administrators, the parents should have a voice in there, there should be stakeholder voices and deliberation across the entire structure of the school, although I'm talking just about the classroom. In general, if this is going to have real meaning for students lives, the adults need to enact it amongst themselves as well. Um, one of the first things I did was um, I have a TEDx talk uh, connected to this and you can see there that I started from chaos. So I didn't come in with my pedagogical authority and establish routines and cultures and ways of being in the classroom at that point, because I had, it was the first time I was really teaching a strongly urban population of students. I had a real fear of invoking my own implicit bias on kids. And that fear came from the fact that it's implicit, you don't know what it is. And I didn't want to harm kids. I didn't know how much rules and the ways in which rules would make sense to kids. So I had about the first two weeks were chaotic and then the kids started begging me for rules. And so that's in that video what happened from there. Today, I would start differently because I now understand that kids, especially in urban chaotic classrooms and under uh, funded schools, a lack of curriculum, and so that chaos has very often made them be disheartened and feel unsafe in school. So the better thing in my view for most kids would be to have a very strong structure that you gradually, and this is what I do in my college classes, and what in the third podcast, a 10th grade teacher, a woman in 10th grade at that time talked There we invoked models that we knew were effective for the classroom, but then slowly peeled them back and slowly allowed that agenda to emerge and slowly involve students. And very often they modeled what we did, but then they would start to tweak it. I just observed this this last semester with the way students taught. Um, so the thing that this does allow though, is even if I have a model for how a classroom well run, every classroom is different. Every group of students that comes in is new. Um, the context COVID hit and whole new things come into play. Students might have a better idea than I do, or they might have good ideas about how things emerge, or they might bring to me practices that they've learned from other teachers in other classrooms and suggested for the classroom. And it also, um, it also allows them to call me out on behavior and not me just calling them out on behavior. And that to a level of professionalism that made me either provide a good rational explanation, say, I don't know what the reason is right now. My gut tells me this is the right thing to do. I promise you I will go think about it and try to come back with an explanation. But for now, this is how we're doing it. That's fair. Or you're right. You know, I really need to think about this. Do you have some suggestions for me? So democratic pedagogy is more than a classroom management style but it is very useful in terms of classroom management that is a very good place for it to occur and begin 
and it solves a lot of problems by beginning there rather than the, in the curriculum, um, because the curriculum opens up a whole nother can of worms. And in podcast three, we tend to talk about how we get it in both places, but I'm just going to say at this point, I want to talk about it compared to other classroom management styles. So very often, we basically have two things out there. One I would call behavioristic and one I would call manipulative. So uh, on the internet, it says there's the authoritarian classroom management style, the authoritative one, the permissive and the indulgent. So obviously permissive and indulgent are negative and you're giving kids too much power and they're running the classroom and running havoc over you. And I'm not talking about that. Um, the authoritarian classroom management is a problem because if you want kids to risk thinking to collaborate, but you also make it voice in other areas of the classroom, you're working at odds against yourself. And then the authoritative classroom management is often a behavioristic sort of approach where you give points or, um, you know, you have routines and if the kids do well, they get extrinsic rewards. Um, or maybe in more manipulative style, I'm calling that for the response of style where you have the students write rules but rules that you would come up with anyway and why that's occurring for them or alternatives they have it's something that you tend to do in the beginning not something very often that gets that's ongoing in the moment and testable by the kids so the authoritative classroom style differs from a dialogic classroom style, which is inherent in the approach that I'm talking about, but not synonymous with it. I'll talk about that a little bit. So um, the assumptions I make about this method is that kids are much more interested in discussing in the deliberative, deliberative processes issues that show up in here rather than out there. So like a social justice curriculum really engages students, as you especially think of it as a high school level, but deliberating about issues in the uh, society. But they don't have any power to vote. They don't really, I mean, they might engage in some social activity, but often those issues, while they're important and really maybe impactful in that student's lives, aren't as important to that student as what's happening in the seat next to them. I also assume that there's spheres of democracy that are representing different levels of a power and of power and accountability. I'm personally comfortable with that. Um, I think a modified representative democracy is probably about the best we can hope for, something with more deliberation in more places. But at the end of the day, we are still a nation in a hostile world that has to maintain an economic and military presence in the world. And those dynamics affect and filter down to everything. So I'm, I'm just gonna say there, like a more deliberative, more open form of representative democracy but again we're still going to have authoritarian um, areas in our world and this is where there's more or less options for that deliberation i also assume that there's a freedom within any in any subject matter any classroom you may have a book of school rules but within those school rules there's things that either have been looked over and forgotten or there's degrees of freedom in how you choose to approach those rules. There's degrees of freedom in society, there's degrees of freedom in uh, 
the Department of Education, and there's places where there's not. I also assume that the rules then decided by the administration, the school board or society as a whole can't be changed without proper channels and of appeal. And given those, then there's responsible forms of protest. And then, as I've said, it's very difficult. I assume that implicit bias is very difficult to overcome as a teacher without listening to your students. Um, I also assume that the state mandated curriculum has merit, um, that this is decided on by people who have a lot of experience time in researching and enacting uh, classroom content. And very often, especially, I really appreciate, I teach um, science methods. <clears throat> elementary and middle school science methods at the college level and the the thinking centered curriculum which is very dialogic very dialogue present is an excellent curriculum and uh, the process is excellent I mean I was a homeschooling parent for a long time that was struggling to teach my children and some things I did well some things were afforded to me by the difference between a classroom and a home and some things I didn't do so well so um, you know, the, there are professionals there and there is some knowledge about what content is valuable to know in our society. At the same time, it doesn't mean that um, students shouldn't have choices about what to study. The only reason why I'm not wrapping that in the notion of democratic pedagogy is because democratic education, um, you know, dialogic education covers some of these theoretically, these concepts theoretically, but they can be brought in and make a lot of sense to work together with democratic pedagogy. I also assume that um, there's a hierarchy of power, even though power is distributed. So it's non-binary in the sense that it's not teacher versus kids, but at the same time, there's still a hierarchy of power that the teacher still has authority. And at the end of the day, you know, the buck stops here kind of idea is in place. Um, I do think that having voice and choice helps develop a student's control over and self-regulation of their agency, along with their communicative, deliberative, and collaborative skills. So what is agency? Agency is the power to make choices, let's put it that way. You might have an agent who acts in your stead, you make sure that that power or that choice gets to happen. You um, might um, have the money or the, um, the uh, military or the positional power or the articulation power, or um, you know, the power of rhetoric, or the power of social influence, like all of these enabled you to enact your choices or put your influence in the world out the world or make create what you would like to see happen. And it's it's inherent to and also developed in humans. It's something that is we uh, have as individuals and something that maybe more th theoretical sense later but something that we also have collectively with different groups i might have more agency in one group do in another when i step into a classroom as a professor i have one level of agency when i step away agency just kidding but um you know uh, my authority at that point right whereas the other one is handed to me um although you can lose it so agency is something that we need to help students learn to come from a point of knowledge because Knowledge is power. What kind of power? The power of agency and influence uh, to be able to articulate, to speak up for themselves, to make choices. These are not easy things for kids to say. By the way, kids are just really brilliant at pointing out 
manipulation or wrong thinking, like fourth graders, they're astounded me how well some of these kids could think. And practicing that is a form of agency. And, and then this method of democratic pedagogy, I think is consistent with a learning centered curriculum where students have a lot of dialogue and constantly their models and thinking about a phenomenon in the world and are constantly improving and adjusting their thinking, right? We don't need to just know answers. We need to know how to know answers based on evidence. And when new evidence emerges, note how to adjust our thinking. This is a really important point that we're in as a culture. And the process of democratic pedagogy feeds into that kind of thinking and that kind of thinking feeds into democratic pedagogy. So what do the students benefit? Even if they don't change the world, even if democracy is just as oppressive and representative and unequally distributed as it is right now, what are some things that they're going to gain anyway? They become better at their communication skills. They become better at deliberation. They develop respect for diverse opinions. They develop critical thinking skills. They become flexible in their problem solving, and they can test ideas in practical contexts. Um, they see social structures as flexible and fluid. And so they can think of ways to tweak them to make that better support, whether it's their own life, their family, their friends, their job, or whatever situation they're in their society culture. Um, they, have, they develop a greater sense of responsibility to each other. And here's a little bit of my idealism coming through, but I think needs to mark us as a society. Society right now, in terms of our values, uh, race, those are the very things that make America a superpower. It's our diversity superpower because we're all contend with different views of life and think about what is the truth we should attend to in this moment? What is the best possible option in this moment for our society, ourselves, what have you? And so, if we can see ourselves as a society that is held together by this deliberation process, then what joins us is not that we have the same values, but that we're willing to discuss and talk and deliberate about them. So um, for the classroom, a couple of things that I noticed, students having agency in the classroom helps them more fully and effectively participate in the learning process. As I said, they, um, the model with learning center curriculum is similar, so that's reinforced. Their sense of safety in the classroom because what's expected is transparent incre increases and the fact that they have a voice and choice that they have some say over the running of the classroom also builds security and their structure that also is important in build security. I also think that students who have traditionally seen schools as bastions of hostile white power um, because it's valuing their their voice their leadership and their responsibility it makes that system something that they are participating in and creating rather than something that's hostile and foreign to them and it remarkably has flipped um, in the case of podcast three flipped the classroom to the point where students were bringing their strengths instead of their resistance to the classroom i think that's enough to make me cry right there um, the other thing is that it's inherently educative and what i mean by that is when you see that the learning process is not being Google and looking some factoid up and having a bank of facts, right? That's, we're beyond that as a society. Now we understand that learning is this sort of reflective scrutiny where we um, self-correct as new knowledge emerge, 
emerges, whether it's our society, our corporation, our family or ourselves. And we understand that knowledge continues to grow in an open-ended fashion. And, and we create knowledge even. Um, it's not that we're rediscovering knowledge, but we're actually recreating new knowledge or new ways of seeing or new ways of doing things, which are all forms of knowledge. Um, there's this worry, I think that, um, and I'll end with two thoughts here. There's this worry here that if you give, uh, so this was a phrase that I was growing, gave in a little bit, well, then they're just grabbing for more and more. So, um, it's funny because this is true. That's also an opportunity for discussion. So one thing that happened when my fourth graders wanted to protest the way the administration was policies for the school, making them line up in the hallway. She didn't like that. And she wanted to organize a protest. And I said, well, OK, what's a protest for? How do we do it responsibly? Is there an alternative level of protest, which is more of a hostile action, is there another process that we can do? Can we go to the administration with a list of suggested changes and ask them to consider it and, and deliberate with us about that? So we made that appointment. Um, so uh, again, going learning what channels are there, becoming articulate as a student um, can be very powerful when a young student stands up for what is right or what is ethical or makes a clear argument. Um, and I think that is a good way to move from just simple issues in the classroom that argue you towards more social justice act. Um, another thing is that sometimes the parents don't try this at home. Um, I tried this at home and I realized there's just lines you can't cross as a parent. I made the money. I had to buy insurance. I had to make sure there was a margin of money to repair things. So could the kids budget over and do whatever? It's only going to go to jail if I didn't do some of them. Um, so I had to be a benevolent dictator in my home about some things. But what I would say to them is, look, these are not areas that I can legally or choose to turn over to you. However, what I am willing to do is hear your feelings about it and where I can mitigate it, where I can make something better, where I can explain something better, where I can find a way for you to live with this better, I will try. But sometimes you just have to live with this and you can protest. I appreciate you're allowed to protest. You can protest all you like, but this is not something I'm going to change at this point. So, you know, having the strength to say that and not be manipulated or overwhelmed by your kids, that's, um, that can be a hard thing to do especially if there's more than many more of them than you. But some of these parents came back and um, and they said, you know, they had these kind of conversations with their kids. I gave them this counsel and they actually found out that there were some things they could change. And that was a positive thing for their family. Um, OK, so what am I saying democratic pedagogy is? So specifically, I'm talking about it as a new theory of classroom management, um, and I'm differentiating it from the kinds of democratic pedagogy that are talked about in the literature, which really focuses on having better dialogue in the classroom, meaning giving students some choices and projects to undertake, or having more dialogue about topics rather than only teacher led lectures followed by questions.
times in, into the idea of dialogues, but the, with theoretical concepts of dialogic pedagogy, critical pedagogy, social justice curriculum, equity, and some control over choices. And while I think that democratic pedagogy can be used in addition to one or all of these things, and specifically it's very dialogic in nature, so that kind of falls in pretty easily with democratic pedagogy because you are listening and modifying and expectations based on some of the things they're saying to you and the reverse. So that is a that is a dialogic process rather than a monologic process. Um, but it's also different. So most of these other ideas of democratic pedagogy or these other areas don't consider students can have a democratic choice in the running of the classroom, whether it's for strategies and approaches and suggesting how the direct effect on the classroom is often bracketed off from some of these ideas, not all of them, but many of them, or it's the reverse where the student is sort of giving everything and the teachers um, experience authority and knowledge is just sort of thrown out of the classroom. So I'm going to leave it and I look forward to um, hopefully discussing this in more practical terms um, as well and um, see you around at the next podcast.